Welcome to the jungle. We've got fun and games. We've got anything you want. We know the names. We are the people who can get whatever you may need. If you got the money, honey, we got your disease right here in the jungle. Welcome to the jungle. Watch it bring you to y'all. Knees, knees. Say, I want to watch you read. Well, hey there, skips and skipperettes from all across the wilds of internet land, and welcome to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. So uh, tonight's episode is going to be a little different, and I just wanted to take a little time and just kind of chat with you. There's no guests, just me, and this may or may not be your gig. So trust me, uh, next week the discussions will be back to being about our favorite ride, and the big funny haha stuff will be back with a vengeance. So having this podcast, and you know, we're now into 35 episodes and a whole ton of downloads, and I, I know I've bragged about that a ton because I'm really proud of what this project's become. Well, having it has been a lot of different things to me, and in the last few weeks I've spoken with a few of you, and I've heard about what it meant has meant to you. Um, while it hasn't changed my mind about things, you know, it's definitely opened up my eyes with an appreciation for the people who choose to download the show week after week. And they make recommendations to their friends, and I really, really appreciate that. Trust me, I do. The best way we can grow, get different guests, is for you to recommend the show to friends and to drop us a line and let us know what you like. Now, our Facebook page, as always, facebook.com slash junglecruise. Uh, it's a great place to do that. So why did we start this whole thing, the podcast, and what has it become? Well, you see, when people leave the resort, they always take a part of the resort with them. And every person, that's a different thing. To some people, it's a new perspective on the world they live in. Sometimes it's friends for life. Sometimes people meet their wives or husbands. And sometimes it's like, I don't know, stuff like the belly jewel from Bob the Idol. Yes, I know who you are. I know who took it. Sometimes it's a terrible attitude and a feeling like the time at the resort was wasted. But for everyone, every experience at the resort is unique. Now, I had the opportunity for a year or so to work at Disney University, and seeing that up on my schedule a few times a month would totally brighten up my days because everyone who came through the door of that class would be someone who was going to come into the resort and leave a little bit of themselves and take something with them when they left because everyone would make their mark on the resort when they were there. Now, working at Disney University was huge for me, and it really came uh, in the last year or so of my being at the resort in 2007. Uh, it really feels crazy to me that it had been five, nearly six years since I left. You know, I still feel like I could step onto a boat tomorrow and pull a shift around the river or work a shift on the parade route. Hell, some days there's nothing I would rather do. Now, I know it may seem crazy to hear this from the guy who spent nearly two years dishing out podcasts of all the crazy things that skippers do and telling stories that may not seem to look like uh, the Disney that you would expect to hear about. And look, for all the bad boy stories that we throw around, you know, I'm really a dyed-in-the-wool Disney fan. I bleed jungle water, and my life has really been a long chain of events that has put me in awe of the company and of the theme park. You know, I really do have a huge respect of what the park stands for. You know, five years later, I still pick up trash when I'm on stage. I can't hardly bring myself to swear when I'm visiting as a guest, unless that damn Taste Pilot's Grill gets my French fry order wrong one more time. Then I'll swear. 
But at the same time, I feel like I don't treat it like a cult. And I know some people who are a little too into their particular flavor of Disney. You know, it's like the movie with uh, Uma Thurman and Janine Garofalo. You know, the lion. You can love your cat, just don't love your cat. You guys know what I mean. But I, I digress. So I started this podcast because I thought it was important for us to have a preserved oral history of what the jungle has been to each of us who work there and share that with people and really talk about what Disney is to each of us. I saw what other podcasts and websites were about and I wanted to do something a little different. Now for me, that's the important thing, getting to hear what we've all taken away from our time in the park and passing it down to the road a little bit to the skips of the next generation. Now, we've spoken to a lot of skips, and my list of potential interviews is really only hampered by my time, my gas money, and my current unemployment. Uh, but I've got a year's worth of people, I'm sure, that uh, I'm totally able to, to line interviews up, and I can't wait to share all their stories with you. Now, having said that, the hardest thing about doing the podcast is setting up the interviews. Uh, we're on Skype now, so we can record there, and that helps a lot. But for some reason, skips seem to have things come up a lot. Uh, it's fine, and it just means sometimes we're going to have a long flood of good episodes, and other times it might be a little lean and we might have some more space in between them. So why all of this, the whole change in tone for this episode? Well, it's a story I wanted to share with you, something that kind of inspired me, and at the same time, it kind of put a burr under my saddle, and just something that I wanted to share with you. At the same time, it's a chance maybe to have a little bit more of a dialogue about serious things and put something a little bit more serious out there, maybe some of my views. So at the start of February, um, my lovely lady Christy and I went up to San Francisco for a four-day outing. We were up there to spend the day with her sister and her sister's husband who was pregnant. Well, she was, the sister was, not him, pretty sure. Uh, Becky and Mark, really nice kids, sweet, fun, uh, was nice to meet part of Christy's family. Mark's very uh, East Coast Italian, if you know what I mean. And Christy and her sis are very Midwest in their sensibilities. So when we were uh, agenda planning, I was a little cautious to recommend going to the Disney Family Museum as part of our trip. Now, I know my lovely lady doesn't have the depth of connection to the Disney legacy that I do, and I really didn't have much of a read on her sister and brother-in-law, so I kind of threw the idea out there tentatively. Turns out I couldn't have read the situation more incorrectly. They are huge fans, go to Orlando regularly, love Disney. So we finished hiking around San Francisco all day long, tore my feet apart in shoes that weren't really meant for 10 miles of uphill walking, which is funny because the pregnant girl was totally lapping me. Uh, but about 2 o'clock or so, we headed to the museum. Now, it does close at 5. And we got there a bit before 3, so we figured about 2 hours was going to be enough. Uh, first thing I want to point out about the, the Walt Disney Family Museum, if you're going, give yourself more than two hours. The actual museum itself was a solid two hours, but I felt a little rushed, uh, and it definitely add an extra hour if you're doing any of their special exhibits. Also, AAA gives a $5 discount, so pull that card out. And if you don't, trust me, look, the 20 bucks is a lot better spent than on an Alcatraz tour or a shitty t-shirt saying that you got crabs at Fisherman's Wharf. So basically, part of today is my review of the Walt Disney Family Museum. A little history about it, then some of my thoughts about it. Uh, if you're not already bored and now you know what's coming, you've been forewarned. You can just turn this episode off and skip to the next one where we have other skippers on and you don't have to hear just my voice for the whole time. 
So the museum opened October 1st, 2009, so we're coming up on around three and a half years. So at the time I started following them on Facebook, but I really never looked too deeply into the posts, and I never really had them on my radar for what they were doing up there. I feel about the museum as I feel about Disneyland. Now, I've said this strongly about Disneyland for years. It's not for the little ones. Um, I'm always amazed at the young age people bring their kids to Disneyland. I think it's more about the parents than the kids at those early ages. But anyway, the museum is even more like that. It's not a theme park. Maybe at age six or seven, they might get something out of the animation loops and some of the big paintings of the characters they know, but it's all going to be lost on the little kids. This really is a museum that's built for adults and the people who can appreciate it and understand a little bit about Disney and the Disney legacy. So the Cars set are going to be totally lost here. I also may be hitting you with stuff you already know, but this is history, so you can sit through a review. It's fine. Uh, The museum really is about the life of Mr. Disney himself, and it's definitely curated with that perspective. It's not about the company. It's not about the theme parks. I mean, they're there, but it's really about the man. And the museum takes an oddly personal touch at the same time that it contains his legacy of being a great showman. It's 40,000 square feet, so it's a big footprint, and it's owned by the Walt Disney Family Foundation, which was established by Walt's heirs, most notably Diane Disney Miller, Walt's daughter. It doesn't have a formal association with the Walt Disney Company, but you know, it's amazing how many items in their care were items I had seen at the Disney archives or on display at the resort during the years. There's even carpet and furniture from Walt's apartment over top of the fire station. So like all good Disney rides, this one tells a story. Uh, It starts off and chronicles Walt's early service with the Red Cross in World War I because he was too young to enlist in the military like his brother. It talks about him coming home and finding his way as a commercial cartoonist and doing uh, very early animation that would run before serial movies in his local theaters. Those were really a joy to see it, some some stuff I'd never seen before. There's some early examples of the Alice comedies, uh, one of Walt's original movie cameras from the 1920s. So the first two rooms of the museum give you the setup, the first act. Then you take the elevator to the second floor and... Wow, bam, pow, welcome to Mickey Mouse Land. You know, you get Oswald, you get early laughograms, you get Walt Disney's recruitment of the other people who would make his animation concepts sing. You get a real feel for his incredible ability to recruit talent. And you get a feel for how hard of work that this all truly was for him. You know, that's probably one of the biggest things I took away from the first couple of exhibits is how much of an ordeal it was for him. Uh, You know, Walt Disney filed bankruptcy, struggled personally, hawked his soul, and he worked really hard. I think we forget this was a land before Kickstarter and a point in time where it was really something for someone to achieve the success that he did. It was something new, something different, and it was really amazing. Just as amazing, though, and one of the biggest things that I took away from the museum, and I encourage you to find this as well, it's the thread that weaves through the entirety of Mr. Disney's story, and that's the story of his family. You know, in my uh, my time at the Disneyland Resort, I worked at the Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln attraction, and I had a chance to meet both Walt Disney's daughter, Diane, as well as his grandson, Christopher. Now, it wasn't much more than a cursory greeting and a handshake, but it was a really cool and defining moment of my time at the resort. You know, we stood there for a moment, Walt Disney's daughter and I, and we were looking into the same office that he used to keep up at the Burbank Studios when that was still housed at the Lincoln Theater. It was really a humbling little moment for me. So I have a moment of connection there, just a thread, 
But when I read through all the scattered documents, photos, and exhibits that are tucked away along the back wall of the museum, you know, those are the ones that really drew me in. The stories of the family outings, vacations, births, the unabashedly honest story about Walt Disney's mother passing away from carbon monoxide poisoning in a house with a faulty heater that he had purchased for her. You know, it's a story that I'd heard before, but in that context, in the line of his life laid out before us, it had an unexpected and poignant tone that created context for much of the other uh, exhibits that I was going to see. Now, there's one thing I respect most about the Walt Disney Family Museum. It doesn't whitewash the hard stories, and it doesn't sugarcoat anything. Unlike the Walt Disney Company, the Family Museum doesn't hide, for example, Mr. Disney's smoking habit. You know, I was always kind of struck by mixed feelings when we stood by that photo that used to hang uh, near the Lincoln Theater that had been airbrushed to remove a cigarette that uh, Mr. Disney was smoking in the shot. Now, I understand the context of demonizing smoking in the modern day and the values that need to be passed along to the young kids who are coming to the park, but I'm also a big fan of honesty in the way we do so. Now, there's this thread, this family thread, and it runs all the way through the museum. But it's something that could be missed through all the show and the multimedia exhibits, and to do so would be a real shame. This is really what the museum is about. You know, the words Walt Disney Family Museum is really a perfect name for the place, but people are putting the old emphasis on the wrong syllable, if you know what I mean. This isn't the Walt Disney Family Museum or the Walt Disney Family Museum, like a place you would take your family. It's not even the Walt Disney Family Museum. It's the Walt Disney Family Museum, if you understand what I'm trying to say. It's a really great perspective to have on it. It really is the story of Walt Disney and his family, and how eventually we really all became an extended part of that family. So here's the first thing. Keep your eyes open for the little stuff, and follow along the family stories on the back wall of the museum. It's really one of the best contexts to see everything in. So I'm not going to spoil all the wonderful little moments for you. But let's just say the production values are amazing and it just as good as anything in the parks. In some ways, it kind of feels like an extension of the parks, but in other ways, it feels vastly different. It's almost like stepping into the mind of archivist Dave Smith and manipulating his memories like the computer screen in the movie Minority Report. Whoosh, zooms, move things around. Now, there's really two big takeaways from the museum that I had, and the, the two things that really inspired me to sit down and have this little jungle side chat with you. It also took me three months to really turn them over and tumble them like rocks in a rock tumbler until they were polished enough and refined enough for me to put them out here. And the first one is this. Um, when I was going through the museum, I felt like I was meeting Walt Disney for the first time. You know, I'd read books, biographies, I'd worked at the resorts, stood in his apartment, I'd walked in his footsteps, as we say when we're doing training at Disneyland. I'd talked with cast members who were working at the resort when Mr. Disney was still alive, and none of that, none of that gave me a perspective like going through this museum in two hours. The view of this man that you get from the tour is so dramatically different. You know, it's the same video, the same clips you've seen so many times. It's all stuff that's out there on the internet, but there's a context that it fits into so wonderfully. You know, it's kind of like the ring box that shows off a wedding ring. There's a reason it's there, because it helps you get the context of the thing inside of it. And that's really how the museum is set up. So this is the first of my big things. You know, ever since I got a job at the park, but particularly in the last two years of doing this podcast, I have heard one phrase over and over that has driven me nuts, and it's basically a variation of this. It's what Walt would have wanted, 
or this isn't the way Walt would have done things. Now, honestly, I don't consider myself a guardian of the legacy or anything like that. I'm a guy who sits down with his friends and talks about the times from when we used to work at a boat ride at a theme park. But there's people, and there's a damn big number of them, who believe that they've somehow inherited the mantle of Defender of the Realm, and they speak for Mr. Disney in the way that the Pope supposedly speaks for God. Look, here's a few examples. I got into a big discussion with a number of people when the Magic Kingdom in Orlando decided to serve beer and wine at a single restaurant. I heard everything from, it's just a first step to them serving alcohol everywhere in the parks, and there shouldn't be alcohol anywhere there's kids, You know, and those arguments are fine, and we can have that discussion in a rational manner. But I saw half a dozen people take the argument that Mr. Disney wouldn't have wanted it that way. You know, I almost don't know why it bugs me so much. I think mainly because I really believe that Mr. Disney was a man of his times. He adapted with television, advertising, marketing, and film. He adapted to the political climate of the United States and the times in which he lived. And sometimes he did that poorly. Go read the story about the union strike at the studios and how there was an attempt to tie that into the communist hearings in Congress. He adapted during war and during peace. He was a showman, and at the root of being a showman is being a salesman. You know, honestly, I think he would have thrown those bottles of beer into a Disney label and sold the hell out of it based on where our culture is now, based on the acceptance and use of alcohol within mainstream society. Yeah, but it's not really my place to say, but more importantly... I think there's an overconnected nostalgia that people feel from growing up with the Disney culture all around you. It makes people want to be experts or feel like they are and have opinions and be connected. Now, I certainly have fallen into that trap many times with the podcast, and usually when it happens, I sound like a self-important prick. But really, I don't think that we know Walt Disney on the level that we think we do. I think we see him through a lens of life that shows us a man from 50 years ago, a man who most of us never even came close to seeing live on a TV or getting any kind of a feel for who he was. We've seen him through the eyes of reviewers, documentarians, historians, and through the eyes of media, and I think we all know how twisted that can be. Now here's another example of this, and it was a discussion I was having about a week after I came back from San Francisco. A friend of mine and I were discussing the gay marriage movement in the United States, and understand, I'm a huge supporter. Um, He made a comment that the movement wouldn't have had certain toeholds if it wouldn't have been for the way that the Disney company had treated gay employees, and that it was amazing that Walt's vision was nearly coming true. I agree with the first part. I think that the the acceptance and culture that the Disney company has helped spawn with their, um, their acceptance and their treatment of everyone is amazing. But without wanting to get into my friend's face, I went online and tried to find any reference by Mr. Disney regarding that topic, and I, of course, found none. The Disney Company was a very politically conservative group for a long time, historically, and it wasn't until huge cultural shifts in the 1970s that they started to become more and more accepting. I think that the company is often confused with the man, and the nostalgia of what the company has become gets mixed in with the positive views that we have about Mr. Disney from our memories and how he was portrayed. Look, the Disney company now is not Walt Disney's company. It's evolved and it's changed as time has gone on. But most importantly, really to me, it's made attempts to carry on in his legacy. But the world we live in is not the world in which he lived. And even though he predicted a lot of technology and media importance of the future, I don't think any of us can truly know what he would have wanted. 
And I think it's irresponsible to try to represent things in that way. I'm walking through the museum and I realize the person who I thought I knew that I didn't. And I don't think many other people did. Maybe his daughters and a few of his business associates, but not all the people who continue to tell me what would Walt have done. People who have bumper stickers on their cars that say that. Look, time has moved on. People have changed. Things have changed. And the world is a very different place. And honestly, thank goodness it is. Okay, off the soapbox. The first point's over. Now, remember, you were warned this is a different kind of episode. Good news is, topic two is not me being quite so opinionated. So back to the premise. I'm in San Francisco with my recently engaged fiancé and her sister and brother-in-law, and we're going through the museum, and I am wide-eyed, wondrously looking at all of this. And then we come to a top-down model of Disneyland, and it's basically come to life in a couple of different eras of maps of the park. I say that because I see a few things from different eras that shouldn't be together on the same map at the same time. And it's this big downwardly spiraling ramp around the map. And as I get to the end of the ramp, I get hit with a huge revelation. I've walked along a path of life. This amazing, wonderful, hugely impactful personal journey of a life that I didn't really understand before. I'm standing there between walls of video screens, and of course I'm picking out all the Jungle Cruise and True Life Adventure scenes, uh, the video of President Nehru driving the Jungle Cruise boats with Mr. Disney. That's one of my favorites. And I just chatted with one of the volunteers for a bit, and then I, I stood there at the bottom of the ramp with my Christy, and she's holding my hands and looking into my eyes. And she's not as big of a Disney person as I am, but she's really enjoyed the trip through the museum. So she looks into my eyes, and she sees something is up. And she just asked me what's wrong, and it took me a second. See, at that point, I realized when it was. At that part of the trip, the place in the journey, the marking of the floor that was a space in time along this this thread of life. And I knew what was coming next. And the realization hit me and took the breath out of my lungs. You know, I, I knew in a few more steps it was going to be December 15th, 1966. Now, they did an amazing job with what comes next, and I won't spoil that moment for you. It's personal, it's amazing, and it's extremely well done. There also was not nearly a single dry eye in that room. Mine were certainly not. And I was glad that Christie's sister and brother-in-law weren't caught up with us yet. Christy had headed back to see where they were at, and I I sat next to an older man, maybe late 60s, with gray hair and a beard, really long, covering his shoulders, big bear of a man, leather vest, just in tears. You know, when I thought about it, he would have been in elementary school when Mr. Disney passed away. So I just sat next to him. Probably a 25-year difference in ages, and we just shared that moment. You know, even as I'm writing down some of the notes for this episode, it, it choked me up again, just a little bit. You know, in a way, Mr. Disney was everyone's grandfather. And for a generation who grew up at a certain time, you know, cable TV, DVDs, the internet, it's changed everything for the generations that came afterwards. But it was such a complete life, and it was so filled with love and creativity and making a difference in the world. 
And I really think that's the greatest thing we can do is to create. I think there's a level of consumption and the level of creating in life. And that's how I judge my life personally. What have I created and have I made more? Have I created more than I've taken in? I think, and I, I guess that's really hit me after this moment and that day. I think that's part of why I've always made jokes about the Disney consumerism and the place it's become in the world because it's become a thing that just gets ingested without a thought as to what it is, what came before it, what its bones are, and what its ancestors are. I think that we get lucky working at the resort because we get to have moments, moments where what we do was the exact same thing that was done nearly 60 years ago. A moment where we get to create and a moment where what we do matters. You know, I do feel honored to have been driving the boats on a river in a theme park that Walt Disney made possible and touching the number of lives that I did. But there were thousands and thousands of other people around me at those moments and everyone else was having their moments too. You know, it's part of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing with these podcasts. You know, I spend a lot of time and money, but I want those stories of those moments to be somewhere. So what was the Walt Disney Family Museum for me? It was an intensely personal journey, one that could have only happened for me at that exact moment in that exact place and time. It was a chance to play Doctor Who and be a Time Lord and take in a man's life in two hours in a way that I'd not been able to do in my prior 41 years. It was a revelation and an amazing journey. You know, the funny thing is this. I really don't even consider myself to be a big Disney fanatic. I love what I'm getting a chance to do, but my primary passion is photography and creating images and pretty pictures. I love the time that I spent at the resort, and it may seem that because of the podcast being what it is that it defines me in my life. It's a good fit for me, and getting a chance to be at Jungle in the way that I did was great, but really I'm not some crazy so cuckoo about it. But the people who I used to work with, they are still my friends, and the Jungle water had gotten into my veins. You know, I'll probably never get to the point where I would go to D23, and I never even thought about, you know, the possibility of getting married at Disneyland with Christy, maybe 20 years ago, but not now. So after that journey through the museum is over, you walk out, and there's a little cafe that seems so small and really out of place in our world of Starbucks and the polished Disney food service. But then there's this wonderful little gift shop, and it's chock full of products about Disney that aren't Disney products. Uh, it's got artwork and books and characters, but it's all only through the time that Walt passed away, nothing modern. It has incredible stuff, and it really is a lovely museum store. You know, it's got that non-commercial feel that the best museum stores like the Getty or the Met have really been able to capture. The gift shop alone could have been like an hour of exploring, and I, I wanted to have so much of it that I could take home with me. You know, I don't know if I've told this story. Heck, I don't remember half of what we've talked about on the episodes. When I go back and listen, I'm normally really surprised about what comes out of the speakers. But I have a single thing, a single collectible, and it's one of my most cherished possessions. And if you know me, you know that I'm almost near Spartan. I'm not a stuffed person. But I have a Disneyland lunchbox from 1956 after the park opened by about a year. It has a castle on the front, exactly like you'd expect, uh, the scene with Tinkerbell flying over the top, just like on the TV show. On the back, the entire full panel of the back is devoted to the Jungle Cruise. Boats, skippers, guns, hippos, exactly like you'd expect it to be there today. You know, I've always kind of felt that's how Disneyland was. 
Even though you have that shiny castle and Tinkerbell and all that on the front, the jungle was on the other side, kind of holding everything together, and being there was a very unique experience from day one. Both are kind of ever-changing, always the same. The timelessness of the experience and the wonder in the eyes of kids and parents alike. So anyway, all lunchbox discussions aside, next time you're in San Francisco, take the time, head down to the Presidio, take a walk through the life of a man who I don't think we understand as well as we think we do. It really was an incredible and powerful experience, and if you're listening to this podcast, uh, I think you'll probably really like it. So what else to say? You know, guys, this is not going to be a regular thing. Honestly, part of this is coming out because there's an upcoming episode where we talk about some of these topics, and I really thought it needed a bit of context before the episode came out. Also, I've had notes scribbled down uh, on notepads about my time at the museum and the trip that I made, and I just wanted to share that with you guys. You know, also, I've never really thought about the show as it really being about me. And this is a lot more personal than I want to get on a regular basis. And trust me, that's a good thing. But still, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the discussion today and uh, about my time up at the Disney Family Museum. So please shoot me a message over at junglecruise, C-R-E-W-S, at gmail.com. So the normal plugs, as we do at the end of every episode, guys, catch us over on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Uh, Just search Skipcast or Jungle Cruise, C-R-E-W-S. As always, if you're an ex-skipper or know someone who might want to sit down on the show and chat with us about their time at Disney, shoot us a message on your email. Most importantly, please pass us along to your friends and family who love the Jungle Cruise. And let's keep the audience growing. May has already seen us a huge bump in listenership, and I'd love to keep that going. Most importantly, thank you to everyone who listens. It means a lot to me, and your support's been great. I really appreciate it, and we love being the number one Jungle Cruise-themed podcast on iTunes. Okay, we're the only Jungle Cruise-themed podcast on iTunes, but it's still great to have your support. I really appreciate it genuinely. So thank you very much, my friends. It's time to say goodbye, and we'll see you next time on Tales from the Jungle Cruise. Kungaloosh, everyone. <laughs>